Friday morning and welcome to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. You're listening to Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. But there are all kinds of ways to connect with us. You can tune in over the air online or on demand at kfuo.org, or even through your favorite podcasting app. Just search for Thy Strong Word. Today is Friday, August 12th, and our program is live, so feel free to call into the studio with comments or questions. That number is 1-800-730-2727, 800-730-2727. But you know what? You can also email me your questions and comments, or maybe you just want to say hello at pastorboo@gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. Be sure to let me know where you're listening to us from and, and how you're tuning in. Now, Thy Strong Word is underwritten by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. So I want you to go visit them online at lhfmissions.org. You'll discover all the amazing things they're doing to spread the gospel of Jesus. Now, I pray that you've been enriched as we've just gotten started exploring the Apostles Paul letter to the Romans. Now, yesterday we covered the first half of chapter 2, wherein the Holy Spirit reveals to us through Paul that God shows no partiality between Jews or Gentiles. The Apostle proclaims, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we know that good flows from faith. Now, in the second half, which we will explore today, St. Paul lays out some important details about God's law and judgment. So my guest this morning to help us dig into chapter 2, verses 12 through 29, is the Reverend Stephen Tice, a frequent guest of Thy Strong Word and pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Pastor Tice, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, sir. It's a pleasure to be on the air with you. This is uh, the first time you and I have had a chance to do this. Obviously, you, you've only been able to, to get involved recently as a regular host, but I'm glad to have you with us. Well, thank, thank you, you very much. Yeah, I've been a guest uh, for a few years, just sporadically on various different shows, but I'm very excited to be hosting, and I'm very excited to you know meet you over the air and, and see how, uh, how we get along as we explore Romans chapter 2. Now, well, thank you. Most, most of the uh, listeners probably know you because, like I said, you're pretty regular, but you know, just for my sake, share a little sure. bit about what God's doing uh, through you and through your congregation in Emmanuel Lutheran there in Missouri. Well, we're in, we're in New Wells, Missouri. This uh, is northern Cape County, Gerardo, and uh, Cape Gerardo County. Uh, I've been a vacancy pastor here uh, for a year and a half now, um, and as I've been serving, the congregation has been assessing uh, which direction it uh, ought to be headed, uh, putting together uh, call list materials, and now has received names of candidates to consider for the call of, of pastor. And when I say candidates, I don't mean a seminary graduate. I mean pastors who are being considered by the congregation as individuals to call. So in the process of going through the, you know, the review of who they are and what they've gone through, you know, they've had some 
some uh, ups and downs just by virtue of COVID situation, things that, you know, had to be adjusted for that uh, after their previous pastor had um, actually died of heart problems uh, right before Christmas in 2020. So they, you know, it was an un, I'll say an unanticipated vacancy in the sense that he had been ill, but it it appeared that uh, the surgery had been useful and successful. So we've been looking at ways to do things, but, you know, we, with several other local uh, Missouri Synod congregations, we've had uh, vacation Bible school over the past couple of years, again, this summer with uh, parishes that are daughter congregations, actually, of this parish. And so we look at uh, God continues to bring his blessing and his good gifts to the people. And as they do that, I get a chance to, to work with them and bring them the gospel, and they give me the chance to preach and teach Bible class and use gifts God's given. So it's just a wonderful wonderful thing for me to be able to use these gifts and to meet a need for the congregation that God allows me to serve. So, Wow. Well, as a former circuit visitor myself, I just have to say, God bless the vacancy pastors. (laughs) Congregations, (laughs) yeah, congregations are at their most vulnerable oftentimes during the call process. And we need, you know, strong, caring leaders like yourself to help them navigate all the things that come along with seeking God's choice for their next shepherd. And it does go to show you that while, of course, the office of ministry is incredibly important, sometimes, you know, having this vacancy pastor and this outside influence helps a congregation discover, you know, God's mission for them. And it sounds like that's what you're doing there. Yeah, that's it. Uh, you know, they, they've been here for over 160, 75 years now. Uh, 71, I think. Yeah. But at any rate, the, the parish has such Unlike many of the churches uh, that came out of Saxony or Germany and other places, this congregation's roots are from Austria, and and they have they have some oh, interesting wow. distinctions because of that that make them a a congregation that has an identity that they can they can fall back to as as ancestral, but at the same time an identity that they have as unity with the rest of the body of Christ around the world and finding ways then to share the good news of Jesus and touch the people in this community. And this is, again, we, we have a, I say we, uh, as Christians, we tend to, to fall into the trap of, of assuming or thinking that many of our neighbors are churched or know the gospel. And especially in, a, in the elderly, uh, and I say elderly, not name, not aged members, but uh, an older congregation, it, it becomes easy to assume everybody knows who we are. And so we have to keep being aware that the gospel is new to people who are new in the world or new to our community, and so we, we keep finding ways to try to touch their their lives with good news. And that's one of the great benefits of this program. It allows people wow. to invite someone just to listen without being threatened, to, you know, that they're going to be questioned or put on the <laughs> spot if they walk through the door. So, you know, thy strong word is even an actual opportunity for outreach if a person can steer someone to just listen to the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit will do the work. Well, you know, it's so important, and that's so aptly said, too, that we cannot assume that the people around us in our lives and in our communities, that they have a right understanding of Christ and God's message, even if they think they do. And I think that's where we run into issues. We go out into the world. We meet people. They're either de-churched or unchurched, or they just don't care about church. And a lot of that is because they don't know 
the truth about church. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so, yeah, and I, and I love programs like Thy Strong Word and Sharper Iron and Concord Matters and all the other great programs, Law and Gospel, that are on KFUO because, yeah, you can – it's like sitting in the back without the uh, without the threat of being called upon. You can hear mm -hmm. God's word from great pastors like yourself. Well, brother, let's get started. But before we begin, it would be uh, I'd be very grateful if you'd start us off in prayer. Absolutely. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we thank you that you have indeed written on our hearts that word which tells us outside of ourselves there is one who sets standards and that those standards are applied to all of us because we all live in the world you have made lord we ask that you bless our study of your word today that you open our eyes and our ears to see that your word is good for us and that what you provide requires we listen to you you never ask for our opinion about what you say but you proclaim it for our benefit. Bless our hearing, our reading, our discussing today, that those who are searching, those who are troubled, those who are feeling condemned, find the truth of who you are in Christ Jesus. Lord, we also ask your blessing and healing on those who are sick, those recovering from surgery, those going through any kind of stress or depression issues because of economy or relationships or health status. Lord, we know that you bring peace to the broken world, and we wait for you to come again to restore all things. Until that day, bless us through your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. In that fine prayer, you mentioned that God doesn't ask for our opinion. <laughs> and that's no. our goal. That's our goal today uh, and every day is as we read and study and dig in and explore God's word, we're looking for what God has to say. Uh, brother, have you ever been in a Bible study where it seemed like it was the way it was operated is the leader— would read a verse and then go around the table and say, well, what do you think about that? And what do you think about that? And what do you think about that? I, I actually I'm, grew up with those kinds. Yeah, I'm familiar with the concept, but no. <laughs> I was I was raised in a, a Lutheran family and attended Lutheran schools. And so I've, I've been in, I won't say an insular situation, but a specifically preconditioned situation where your opinion was, what do you think God's telling us in this passage? Mm -hmm. And then let's discuss why you think that. Now that but makes a lot more sense yeah. than just sort of search your own heart to come up with meaning. Yeah, yeah. So, well, um, is, that's what I really love about the Lutheran Church, by the way. Now, I didn't grow up Lutheran, but what drew me to the Lutheran Church was this reality that, yeah, you know, we're seeking after what God has to say rooted in history, um, measured by our confessions. And it's just such a blessing and a relief, frankly than having to constantly search one's own understanding to try to figure out what God's saying, because obviously what we believe can change with, uh, with the whims of the world or with our own emotions, but God's Word is forever. Yeah, and, and that Word is given to us, sent to us. Um, we, we talk about the term that's used in theology session, sessions or theological context is revealed knowledge. And uh, there is a natural knowledge of God, and Paul touches on that in today's section, but it's the revealed knowledge that really tells us who God is and what God has done for us. The, the natural knowledge of God that, again, is here in this section of Romans 2, 
tells us that God exists, uh, tells us that right and wrong exist, but doesn't necessarily help us draw the lines in all situations. And, and so we, we rely on, we're dependent on God's revealed knowledge. And that's, that's uh, partly where this section starts off, really, yeah. with those who don't have it. Well, let's let's dig into it then. I'm going to read just uh, verses 12 through 16 for us to start with. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Holy Bible. Here we go. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus." And we'll stop there. It's always hard to find a place to stop in Paul because his arguments so eloquently flow from one to the other to the other, so much so that he has these long run-on sentences sometimes too. But we have this beautiful message that God is not partial. He is impartial, and that's what precedes this section. Uh, Pastor, all have sinned Mm -hmm. without the law, all who have sinned under the law. Help us make sense of what Paul's saying here. What Paul is reflecting on, on as a, uh, I'm going to say, instructed individual, he was instructed from childhood on about God's creation, about God giving the law through Moses, and he understood all of the what I would call the Old Testament basics of human origins. And in so doing, what he's talking about here is we are all under the law because Adam and Eve sinned, and he gets into that in greater detail, obviously, further into this letter. But, but the realization that all human beings have the same condition, and this has been, in my experience, one of the biggest challenges for people to deal with, because uh, we have a, a society, and our, our fallen sinful nature always wants to find the, the list of rules or the system by which we can make things better or make things right so that we can fix the brokenness. And what Paul's getting at here is, all have sinned. Whether you're under the law or not under the law, all have sinned. And this is the real problem. We're all sinners. We're all in the condition of not having the ability to not sin. So we're looking at this realization that our conscience tells us we're doing right or we're doing wrong. As I like to tell people, it points to the fact that outside of us there is a standard we didn't set because everyone's trying to meet a standard. Now, the standard will change from culture to culture, age to age, uh, society to society, but all humans acknowledge there's a standard to meet. Even those who will come along and say there are no standards actually have a standard, and standard is there are no standards. They just don't realize the contradiction in what they just said. But what I'm getting to here is we all have a condition from which we cannot free ourselves. And no matter what we do, you can't change that condition. As I normally describe it, it's like the blood type you're born with. You can't change that blood type. There's nothing you can do to make it different. And every person born has a blood type. Now, we have different blood types within the human uh, population, but 
we all have this condition of spiritualness, and we all, again, back to a deeper theological concept, we all have the same God. We just don't all recognize him. Right. You know, I think it's interesting. Yeah, you brought up this idea of uh, a standard, and, you know, he begins here with this idea that there are people who have the law. So it says, you know, all have sinned without the law will also perish out the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged Mm -hmm. by the law. It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous, but the doers. And and so he's setting up this sort of demarcation between hearers and doers. And what it reminds me of, Pastor, is you have back in Paul's day these Jews who would have all of these different uh, ceremonial occasions and sacred days. They would go. They would hear the law read. They would know people perhaps who are students of the of the law. They would know rabbis. They would have access kind of any time they wanted. You know, we didn't have the same kind of they didn't have the same kind of access we have today, but they knew where they could go and hear the law. But just Mm -hmm. hearing the law and not obeying it, you know, has no value. And so the, the thing I think about today is this reality that in no other time in history have the people of God or really all people, if they want, have had such unfettered access to God's revelation. There are Bibles in all these different languages, even more all the time, thanks to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation and others. But there's also this this idea that you can get the Bible on your phone. You can go on the computer. You can have little bitty tiny versions to keep in your pocket. You can have big giant display versions. And so the way I connect this to us today is so many, even those who say they are Christians, will have all of this access to God's word. And maybe mm-hmm. they're even in worship or in Bible study. Sure. But are they putting that into practice? But yeah, when Paul is- says doers of the law will be justified, also, you know, get into that. Does that mean that we have to do all these good works to be saved? Yes. Yeah, so just take it from there. Well, I think if, in one sense, if you actually do the law completely, perfectly, yes, you can be saved by it. But you can't because it requires you and me to have a pure heart, and we don't have one. That, it's back to that condition. And so it's the the mistaken idea that if you follow the list of rules, you can, you can provide complete fulfillment of the law. And the only one who actually did that was Jesus, because the law requires us to love the Lord, our God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love our neighbors as ourselves. And, and the, the internal condition of sin prevents us from ever meeting that standard, although on the outside it can look that way. And I was thinking about this word, doers of the law, and, and to, to act, enact the law, to fully do what it says, to, to bring it to its full potential, requires you to have a pure heart. And so, you know, David's prayer in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. We have to have God give us that to start with before we can please him by our actions, or as the book of Hebrews puts it. You know, the action that pleases God requires faith to precede it. And this is where we look at doers of the law who have faith, then they can do it. But you only do it out of faith. You don't do it out of a a sense of obligation or earning a reward. And so in that sense, we, we have to keep in mind that Paul's got the bigger picture throughout this epistle of faith being the starting point, not not works being the starting point. Well, in this bigger picture that he has, of course, in the very next chapter, in verse 20, he says, 
Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So just mm-hmm. as you said, from a pure heart, the law could do all these great things. But And certainly the law is good and righteous on its own. We certainly are going to hear that uh, on Monday. But we also have this understanding, just as you pointed out, that our fallen nature takes the law and really is enticed and aroused by it to do just the opposite, not to want mm-hmm. to keep it. And so for that reason, it cannot save. Yeah, it's, it's the thing that if you and I could actually do the law, that would be justice before, you know, we'd be righteous before God. We can't do it. And, and this, is, this is part of Paul helping them to see that just, and I'm t- talking now about the hearers in Rome who were from the people of Israel to begin with, just the fact that you had been instructed through the, the childhood stage and participated in worship with the right doctrine or the right worship practice, that in and of itself does not count as righteousness. Just hearing the word doesn't bring you the condition you need. There's something more that has to happen. Right, exactly. Jesus himself says, you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say. And mm-hmm. so it says here that Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they don't have the law. And then this very key verse, verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Isn't it interesting, Pastor, that every culture that's ever existed – regardless of their access to the law as revealed by God, tend to think the same kinds of things are wrong. Like, you, you really shouldn't steal. You really shouldn't murder people. You really shouldn't, uh, uh, you know, be unfaithful. You shouldn't tell mm-hmm. untruths or bear false testimony. So yeah. it's fascinating how we even see this played out. We don't, we of course certainly can take God's word for it, but we don't necessarily have to. We see this in practice around the world. Um, how do you how do you see this at work in the world today when we say they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts? You know, we think of those who don't believe in God, and yet they still seem to believe in right and wrong. And everybody has a different measure, but sometimes that measure, or often I should say, that measure is pretty commiserate with what God has revealed. Yeah, this is in fact the, the external proof that God has not left himself without witness, as Paul puts it elsewhere. And and the the moral condition of human beings is corrupted, but the awareness of the values God placed in us at creation, and I think it's going back to Genesis, we hear this phrase, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. From the very beginning, God put part of his grasp of or his um, view of realities right and wrong into human nature and and there are some things in the human body that just won't work because they can't work that way they're not designed to work and they won't work that way and to a certain extent spiritually god put into us even though sins corrupted our our grasp of it completely every culture as you mentioned still says murder is wrong now they'll draw the line between murder and justifiable homicide in different places but every culture says murder is wrong and, and that's because life itself is the gift of God. And in our biological makeup, we fight death. And in our intellectual, spiritual makeup, we recognize that the taking of life without just cause is wrong. God put that into us. 
whether people admit that God put it in there or not doesn't change that that he did it. And so right. we, we see it coming out. And the, the thing that strikes me is, is I listen to political discourse and I listen to social concerns of different people and and they're all very concerned about particular things, not all the same, but different, you know, different people have concerns. But all of them have the belief that there is a right and wrong standard somehow, and they're going to lead others to it. But everybody, everybody agrees that right and wrong somehow exist. And that's yeah, you're, absolute, you're absolutely right. I mean, even when you talk about murder, people may define murder differently. People may define adultery differently. People may define stealing differently. But at the core of it is this revelation from God written on their hearts that mm-hmm. these things are wrong. But, of course, they're clouded by our sin. That's sure. why people say define murder differently or define yeah. adultery differently because yeah, yeah, it's clouded. Now, it says that according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, we know that Christ is the righteous judge. We know he's coming back to judge the world. But this mm-hmm. also brings to my mind that Jesus— being the perfect man who kept the law perfectly, just in comparison, just when thinking about the perfection of Jesus, the law, the Holy Spirit uses the law to kind of work on us, to show us that we need yeah. salvation. Absolutely. And and this comes back to that our identity is found in Christ. As, as individual Christians, what we, yesterday I was um, attending the funeral of my, my sister-in-law's mother, and... Um, you know, she was baptized as a child, uh, raised in a Christian faith, and, and lived that life out. But the, the opening hymn we sang was, uh, God's own child, I gladly say it, I am baptized into Christ. And this identity that we now have as people of God in Christ Jesus brings back this recognition that God sees us through Jesus Christ as righteous. And if we are in Christ Jesus by the work of the Holy Spirit, then that's the way God judges us. He judges us righteous in Christ Jesus. If we're apart from Christ Jesus, then we are judged by our actions and our sin. And that's the problem, uh, because none of us is possible in any way capable of bringing righteousness before God. We just can't do it. And so this is what Paul's getting at. The gospel, my gospel, my gospel, my good news, my good news says that we're judged by Christ Jesus. And if you want to do this standard comparing, you know, I'm better than that one, I'm better than this one, God always says, okay, here I am. I am righteous. I am without sin. Or as Jesus put it, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. And I regularly remind folks that none of us are good. We're forgiven. We're fine. We may be healthy. But when somebody says, I'm good, they're actually wrong. So this is where Christ comes in because he is the righteousness of God is in Jesus, and now it's become ours through faith. And I, I think Paul, again, getting back to the context of Romans, he's writing to a mixed congregation of Gentiles and, and people of the Israelite community living in Rome in a city where there's an imperial religious practice, and they're now, they're now not following it, and it, their culture around them says, all these things are permitted, but this one has to happen. It's, it's so important to remember that Paul's reminding them that there's a God who sets a standard and he's not the Roman emperor. And we live yeah, in that that's, culture. Yeah. And that would have been very scandalous during that time for him to talk about gospel and truth and good news outside of this reality that the emperor was seen as, as God and the, and the one who sets the standards. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So, and, and we, I want to point out though that when he says my gospel, I think it's important, especially in the nomenclature of our modern culture, that he's not saying that this is his version of God's truth or his truth. This isn't something that Paul invented. He uses that term my gospel, but just as he points out in the first chapter of Galatians, he says that, uh, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, including right. himself. And in First mm-hmm. Timothy, he pretty much says the same thing, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So when he says my gospel, he's setting it up over and against the gospel of the age, but it's certainly mm-hmm. not invented by Paul. It was given and revealed to Paul. Yeah, I think this is uh, always important to remember that there were others coming around proclaiming a gospel. And and already Jesus himself said to the disciples before he returned to the Father, there are going to be false shepherds coming out, and they're going to come among you and, and teach false things. And Paul now is saying, the gospel I brought to you, compare others' messages to this one. And when you follow the gospel I brought to you, mine as in I carried it, this is the message I brought. Um, and I regularly repeat this to folks in the parishes I've served over the years. This stuff is in the book. I'm not making this up. You know, this is, this is where it comes from. It comes from Scripture. It's not my personal opinion. This is from the Bible. And that's kind of what Paul is starting to say before there's a written uh, record of, of the, the gospel messages to be shared and the copy of, as you and I call it, the, the canon of, of a New Testament doesn't fully exist yet in this, in this time that Paul's writing. So the gospel identified as the one Paul brought to us. And I think that's key, because Paul is an apostle. Wonderfully put. I think that's a good place to take a pause as we break. Thy Strong Word will be back in just a few moments. We will be with the Reverend Stephen Tice, and I'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back, friends, to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and I'm chatting live with Pastor Stephen Tice of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Before the break, we found our way all the way through verse 16, and now we are coming back to verse 17. Is there anything else you'd like to cover before we move on, Pastor? Well, I think um, the, the key phrase at the end of verse 16 is that God judges the secrets of men. He sees the inner being. Uh, other human beings can see the outside, but God looks at the heart. And I think that's, that's a key to remember here as Paul's writing, that it's not about the outward acts, which still should be righteous, but they themselves are not what God is judging. Absolutely. Starting with verse 17. 
But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Powerful, strong words from the apostle and convicting to those who were relying on the law and yet perhaps not keeping the law as they should. Brother, lead us into this and explain to us how this applies to us today. Well, we're looking at, at the the call to pay attention to who you are in Christ Jesus, and then, again, to the Christians in Rome who had been raised within the, the tenets of the Torah, the instruction of the law. And he's saying, because you've been instructed by the law, you call yourself one of the people of Judah, and you're sure that you're a guide, yet what are you doing when you mislead others? You claim to be a leader, but you're blind. You yourself can't be the one who shows the light if you do not teach yourself from the Word of God. And I think, ultimately, he says, you know, you've got this, this whole problem of, of the do-as-I-say-and-not-as-I-do concept, but the other side of that is justifying oneself. Now, he talked about the Gentiles having the conscience either excusing or condemning them, and now he's saying, you who are not Gentiles, your behavior is much the same in that you allow your actions to be supported because you claim you're doing this to prove that you understand the law. Or in, in the case of uh, teaching others, you know, you say it's wrong to commit adultery, yet you commit adultery. You're, you say it's wrong to steal, yet you're stealing. In the process of teaching others, you've ignored how it applies to you. And again, I struggle with this problem as, as a, an individual Christian, it's, it's always recognized that, that we're sinners. As human beings, we're sinners, and pastors are sinners. And so we have to recognize that before we can bring the Word of God to condemn an action of someone else, we have to have applied it to ourselves. I know this is one of the things that you undoubtedly were taught at the seminary, too, is that first the, the text you're using for a sermon must first apply law to the preacher, and, and then the gospel can come to you, too, but, but you can't go out and effectively, and I'm going to say authentically, uh, condemn others based on the Word of God if you haven't first been condemned yourself by that same Word. And what Paul's getting at here is almost the extent of what I would call a two-faced behavior pattern. We claim to have the truth, and we're going to instruct others with it, uh, but we're not, going to, we're not going to let it apply to us. The, the work that's showing up here is, is there being instructors of the foolish, you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, which is actually correct. I mean, that's the, the Word of God is clear. The law of God is good. The problem is, if you don't teach yourself with it first, you're not going to be who you think you are. The, I, the, I, 
was going to say, I don't believe the idea or the teaching method of do as I say, not as I do has ever worked. You can't get up there as a pastor (laughs) or as a parent and say, well, I'm going to do all these things, but they're not good for you to do. It just doesn't Mm -hmm. work. And there are so many people out there and not just in the religious Mm -hmm. sphere, but there are so many people who are eager to teach. They want people to listen to them, pay attention to them. I think the new modern term, it would be an influencer, right? There's people online that want to be influencers. They want to influence others. And hey, there's nothing wrong with teaching or influencing others or being a parent or being a pastor or being a Bible study instructor. But as you so, so aptly put, we must recognize that the biggest hurdle that Christians face in terms of reaching out to people in the world today is the appearance of hypocrisy. When Christians Mm -hmm. look at the world, we can rightly judge the world, but when we do, as Jesus and and many others have warned us against, we have to also examine ourselves. And Mm -hmm. the best message that the church can give to the world is that we're fellow sinners, not that we are holier than thou. And that kind of goes back to our conversation before we got started about how we're reaching our communities and changing their understanding of the church. It's not that the church has changed, Mm -hmm. but we certainly want them to understand that churches are a hospital for sinners, obviously not a museum of people who are perfect. And I I think that uh, the other term that's sometimes used when it comes to Christianity and the church being a hospital for sinners, it's also not a gymnasium for building up your spiritual power so you can go out and do better. Um, Mm. It's it. It can do that, but it's not its purpose. That's a byproduct of, of the gospel at work in the church, that we are built up in the faith and then can live in it stronger in day-to-day challenges. But as, you know, going back to Luther's small catechism and what, what the, the uh, former monk who lived through this struggle himself, having tried again and again and again to justify himself and live in a way that would earn God's favor, put it, you must daily die to yourself. And in baptism, the old Adam is drowned, and daily that new being comes out. And you talked about this this challenge to the church not to be hypocritical. Uh, Jesus was very blunt about that, and he used his hyperbolic teaching tool, take the beam or the log out of your own eye first before you try to get the speck out of the other guy's eye. Um, and, and that whole understanding that when Jesus says that, the log or the beam is going to be so blatantly obvious to everyone else that you can't get close enough to them to touch them because you push them away with the log or the beam. And and that idea that they'll see the problem in your life before you're ready to, to deal with it, I think is important for us. Uh, you use the phrase, we're all sinners. The church is nothing but people who know they've been forgiven as opposed to people who think they're good enough and don't need forgiveness. Correct. Part of the problem we live with is always getting back to that law motivation or moralism uh, is another way to say that, that people are trying to be a better person. Well, God doesn't call you to be a better person. He calls you to be a forgiven person and to be a follower of Jesus. Now, if you are that, you will be better in how you relate to others, <laughs> but that's going to make you a better person. This, be a better person. Now, civic righteousness, you know, be, be a good citizen, follow the law, care for others, be, be in a, uh, responsive to those around you in need and, and treat others with kindness, respect. You can do that without being a Christian, and those things are all still good and right. That's part of the law in, in the world we live in. It has nothing to do with 
justification. It has everything to do with living as a created member of God's world. But when we look at at the, the danger there is to think that living that way builds a status with God. And so Paul gets back to this this need to go back to what the Word teaches. And you and I then also go back to what the Word teaches. What the Word teaches, we are not to let the, the others blaspheme God's name because of the way we operate. And ultimately, we're supposed to be, as I like to tell people, we're supposed to be windows, transparent so others see Christ. And when we're filled with grime and filth from our own sinfulness, we obstruct the view of Christ and we give people bad light. So... We keep well, so often, so often Christians get it backwards, right? We think that the point of being a Christian is to work really hard at sinning less. Mm-hmm. When the reality of the point of being a Christian, being called into the faith, is to cling more and more to Christ's forgiveness. And as you said, a byproduct. The byproduct then is that we will typically sin less and help others yeah. and, and mm-hmm. good works will flow from that faith. But we don't want to reverse it because when we reverse it, then the focus becomes, just as you said, trying to be a good person, trying to do everything so that we can please God when, in fact, it is God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. And we have to also take this in terms of maybe not a specific congregation, but Christianity as a whole. Of course, he's speaking to the Jews and the Jewish believers in specifically in verse 24 but mm-hmm. we can apply that to the church too. The name of God is blasphemed among the, and let's say, unbelievers because of you. Now, we yeah. hope that's not true, but sometimes it is, and we have to acknowledge and recognize that so that we as a church can be, as you so strikingly put it, can be clear windows, not covered in the filth of our own sins. Yeah, yeah. this is what we're called to be. Jesus says, Jesus says, you're salt and you're light. So... We've we've already been made these things by God's grace. We just have to keep ourselves from getting in the way of those things by the power now of the God. Big, the big issue of Paul's day, at least as it was presented outwardly, is this idea of circumcision. Does one need mm-hmm. to be circumcised to become a Jew before becoming a Christian, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? In these next and last verses of our program today, we're going to dig into that. But I'm going to read verses 25 through 29 again from the ESV. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God." You know, what you're what seeing you here is, is very Paul's very clear statement that, and, you know, this is, I mentioned this earlier, that the congregation I'm serving now is a congregation that has its roots in Austria. And as you look at Lutheranism throughout the United States, there's a strong history of, of Lutherans identifying as Swedish Lutherans or Norwegian Lutherans or Saxon Lutherans or 
Bavarian Lutherans or whatever the case may be, almost to the point that one group saw the other as not quite as as Lutheran as they needed to be. And that's kind of the thing that shows up here. Uh, now, growing up, as you said, you weren't part of the Lutheran Church, so you may not have seen that in the same way that some that's of the right. rest of us did. Um, and, and to recognize that, that that's really missing the whole point. And Luther himself said, I don't want anybody to be called Lutheran. It's not about me, it's about Christ. And so here's where the circumcision issue for the people of Jesus' day really was. When you go back to the book of Acts, the question is being asked, what's the bare minimum that has to be applied to a convert to follow Jesus? And so Paul's reference here to circumcision was because there were, in fact, groups going around saying you had to be physically circumcised to be part of the the church of Jesus Christ. And and throughout the, the New Testament, we find a clear reference to the fact that the physical circumcision was the, the sign God gave to show that these people were part of his, his plan for salvation and were following the, the, the rule of God's love, his, his rule, not we keep the rules. But now what Paul comes back to is God's the one who puts us in this group. We can't put ourselves into it because you can't have circumcision of the heart carried out by a person. You know, it's not the physical circumcision that that man can do. It's the circumcision that God carries out that brings one into this right relationship with God. And so the the outward circumcision is nothing, really. But the inward circumcision, a matter of the heart, that comes by God's work. And this goes back to what Paul says again later on, that, that who's the true Israel? And And this was a big issue in the early Christian church, as some some of my colleagues and I have discussed it over the years, in the early Christian church, the question was, how much of Judaism did you have to adopt? How much of the Old Testament worship life and pattern did you have to adopt to become a Christian? And in some modern situations, for, for those who were raised in a Jewish community, the, the question then becomes, how much can you keep and still be a Christian? Um, you know, almost totally reversing the question, instead of focusing on, okay, if it's Jesus Christ that's at the heart of this, then the outward activity, as long as it doesn't deny Christ, can be observed. Uh, A friend of mine, Lutheran pastor, raised in a Jewish family, uh, you know, observes Hanukkah every year with his household. Why shouldn't we celebrate the festival of the dedication of the temple? You know? But but the question of what else goes with it, that's the key. And so you're looking here at the circumcision by man is not regarded as circumcision. If you don't live by it, the outward sign is nothing. Or to put it another way, I can put all the tattoos on my body I want, but none of that changes my heart. Absolutely. People look at tattoos on the body and start to think things. You know. Well, of course, you know, I would have to say that nowadays, you know, you if you don't have tattoos all over your body, you're seen as sort of suspicious. It's a very popular trend you know. among <laughs> a very popular trend among millennials and Zoomers. Yeah. And, yeah well, you I'm, go I'm to, old uh, and therefore sub- subject to this suspicion, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sure, sure. Well, um, you know, I think it's really fascinating, though, regardless, whenever we talk about, you know, these outward symbols – when connecting them, of course, to inward realities. Mm-hmm. So circumcision represented being uh, a part of the, uh, the family of God, been brought into that family of God. 
But then, of course, if you didn't live according to what the father, the patriarch of the family wanted you to do, and by that I mean God himself, then, yeah, you're not really part of that family. So today I think we can ask ourselves the same questions. You know, um, is being a Lutheran of any value if you don't benefit from the clearer doctrine of the Lutheran faith that points you to the clarity of the gospel? You know, is being a Christian of any value if you just call yourself a Christian, but you stay at home and you never engage with other Christians, you never read God's word, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm thinking about how these things can apply, the whiffum factor, so to speak, right? What's in it yeah. for me? Mm-hmm. We don't often think about circumcision versus uncircumcision, but these, these things still apply to us today. Absolutely. And this is, I think, the, the uh, experience and expression of, of several people over the years. I can't remember who first said this or wrote this, so I can't quote the source. You'll have to help me out on this one. But uh, the individual who said that there are certain people who have had enough exposure to Christianity to become immune to it, but not enough to catch the disease. And, and I think that's part of the problem. Mm. When it's the external components of Christianity that become identified as Christian, and we as human beings in the Christian church don't live out the identity we have in Jesus Christ in our connection with or relationship with other people. And, you know, it's it's ongoing challenge. I've I've run into to Christians who have pointed out that their their stopping attending church was due to the fact that they observed the behavior of those they attended church with that again wasn't in keeping with the word of God. Now, the response of stop attending is the wrong move according to the word of God. The right response right. is to go to that person and say, Hey, what you're doing doesn't comport with what we believe and teach God's Word calls us to. What's going on here? To pull out and to say, well, that person didn't live the way they ought, therefore I quit. But that's, that's a self-justification process. Um, I think the other side that I want to get to here is, is that what Paul says at the very end here is, it is uh, circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God, the one who is inwardly part of the people of God. This is a key thought for me as I think about it. It's the letter of the law that kills, that that precise cutting of the letter that says this way, got to be exactly right here. So when God sends to us a Savior, this Savior is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, but he's not the letter, he's the whole word. He's the word spelling out what God is. When God wanted us to know who he is, Ultimately, finally, in many and various ways, Hebrews 1 spoke to his people of old through the prophets. But in these last days, the word became flesh. He spoke to us through his son. And it wasn't the letter, it was the flesh. And, and that's where we find the incarnation of Jesus so significantly contrasted with the Old Testament law, is that was all letter. Jesus is the word made flesh. And right. that's where the spirit comes into the world then to us by Jesus pouring out his spirit on us. And it's, it's again, such a it's juxtaposition between it's such a juxtaposition between the people of Israel who were to embody God's law for the purposes of being a priesthood to all the nations and mm-hmm. as you pointed out Jesus the logos the literal word who not only embodied in a metaphysical sense but literally incarnate in flesh mm-hmm. he put on human bones and meat, so to speak, so that he could be 
the word of God who keeps the law perfectly on our behalf. That's a that's a wonderful message that, of course, what we're trying to get out to the people is that the law points us to our own sins, our need for a savior. But then, of course, that just makes the soil fertile for the preaching and proclamation of the gospel. We have just a couple of minutes left in the program. Brother, what are some very last gospel-oriented words that you want to leave our listeners today with, especially those listeners, if I can put you on the spot, especially those listeners who perhaps are listening because they're not a part of a church home. Maybe they've had instances where they've looked at the sinful lives of those around them and said, I don't want to be a part of this. Or maybe they just found themselves not going to church more and more often until it just became a habit. What's some... Maybe a little bit of law, too, but what's the gospel we can give those folks? I think the, the two things to keep in mind there is that our human nature tends to become habitual. We follow habits when we develop them without necessarily having asked, why is this good or bad as a habit? And once we have the habit, we tend not to examine it. So we all have to be doing exactly what God calls us to, returning to the Word. I have to do this myself constantly because, you know, I can rationalize all kinds of things and with intellectual tools and and education. I can explain away lots of stuff. But when I go to the Word, there God touches me. And so what God wants to do is He wants me to be in contact with Him where He's promised to meet me. And that's in His Word, which is shared among His people. And in the gathering of the people of God together, there God meets us. The other people in the room are all sinners. Don't look to them as the pattern. Look to them as, as Luther once put it, fellow beggars who know where the food is and are trying to help share the food. They're not the food. They're trying to share it. And so in the gathering together with other Christians, always focusing on the promise God gives in Jesus, and he'll deliver that promise. I'll fail as a human, but God God keeps giving, and he never fails. Brothers and sisters in Christ, our praise is not from man, but from God, as Paul ends this chapter. Thank you so much to my guest this morning, the Pastor Stephen Tice of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Pastor, I look forward to having you on again. Thank you, sir. It was a pleasure to work with you, and God's blessings in the continuing sharing of the good news. Thank you, brother. Dear saints loved by God, thank you, too, for tuning in to Thy Strong Word this morning. Remember, if you'd like to reach out to me, email me directly at pastorboo at gmail.com. Friends, God's peace and blessings to you until God gathers us together again.